Oh hey there, this is the person who travelled to Salem without knowing possums lived there and spent a fair amount of time sitting in the dark like a creep waiting to see some when she found out. I so too. I was happy. Cami Deadleaves, your favourite horror host, for a new episode of Spooky Rama. <laughs> Sunday night, I have a glass of wine, I spend a good day in the woods, I have some snacks, I have some cats. I hope you had a good two weeks since last time and that you enjoy the last episode about Phenomena. And today we're going to be covering Pet Cemetery. I know a lot of you have been wanting me to cover this one for a while, so and so did I, to be fair. So here we go. It's the time. Pet Cemetery, the 1989 version, of course. Not the remake. What is this place? I brought you here to bury Alan's cat. Daddy, is Church all right? Why, Judge? I have Marines. I dreamed he got hit by a car and you and Mr. Crandall buried him in the pet cemetery. What did we do tonight, Judge? What we did, Lois, was a secret. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Has anyone ever buried a person up there? May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. You're thinking thoughts best not thought of. Daddy's gonna do something really bad. You're thinking of putting him up there. Don't deny the thought hadn't crossed your mind. Come back to me, Gage. Come back to us. Pictures presents Stephen King's all-time best-selling tale of horror. Pet Cemetery. All right, so for those who aren't familiar with Pet Cemetery, the story is basically the story of a nice family who moved somewhere in Maine because it's related to Stephen King, so it's going to be in Maine. Um, and there is a pet cemetery that brings back people or animals buried there to life. And it's potentially a dangerous thing. Yeah, believe it or not. So that's basically what's going to happen. As usual, I'm going to start with some technical points. So Pet Cemetery is a film released in 1989. And it's based on the Stephen King book, released in 1983. So it's the first Stephen King book I've ever read. And I need to let it out a little bit. A bit of personal experience right there. So when I was little, me and my cousin, which I'm really tight with, we were all used to go on a f in a family home on a holiday in the summer. We were all going in the same house in the summer, which was like one of my grand friend's house. 
and we were spending summer holidays there. And it was awesome, brilliant memory. So one year, I think I was about nine, I'm pretty positive I was nine, and I was staying there with one of my older cousin, who's a few years older than me, not that much, but just a few years. And one of the treats we were having, you know, it was going to the press shop and buy either magazines or books for the summer. And I remember going there with her and she picked Rage by Stephen King that he wrote as Richard Bachman at the time. Uh, and so she picked this book and I don't know why, maybe I wanted to do like her. I don't really think so. I think I just liked the cover and already I liked creepy stuff already at nine. So I picked Pet Cemetery, knowing nothing about it. I liked animal. I liked creepy stuff. I read the back of it and I thought, yeah, cool. Let's do it. It'll be, you know, my book to read in bed at night and on the beach during the day. And I start reading Pet Cemetery, And at first I was like, kind of okay you know I was okay and then the old thing about Zelda we'll we'll cover it later for those who don't know the story but then in the book they start talking quite you know quite close to the start really about the character of Zelda which is really creepy and comes back in flashbacks as a rotten corpse and nine-year-old me is like oh crap okay I'm too young I'm just too young and I didn't want to really admit it, but I really felt, I'm so glad my cousin was sharing a bed with me, but I was just like, yeah, a bit more than I can chew and I need to put this book down, which I did. And I didn't pick it up for years, for years. I was a bit traumatized and I just could not pick it back up. I think I started reading other Stephen King book before being able to pick it back up. Like I think I read Carrie or something when I was 12 or something like that. But I know I didn't pick Pet Cemetery back up until I was 14. Yeah. And I fell in love with Stephen King. Like, I loved it, but it was just... I know that when I was nine and when I started reading it, I was like, okay, I'm too young. <laughs> like the revelation. Anyway, that's my personal story with Pet Cemetery. Back to the point. Sorry for all this. But I needed to, you know, let the trauma out. So the book is 1983 and the film is directed by Mary Lambert. It's really cool because it's a woman director and now people are starting to talk a bit more about it and to celebrate women's work a little bit more. So I think it's important to note that back in 1989, there wasn't that many women directors. There's still not that many. But Mary Lambert directed this very successful film. The screenplay is by Stephen King. I'm going to get a bit deeper into that in a minute. The main actors are Dale Midkiff, who plays Lewis Creed. Uh, Dennis Grosby, who plays Rachel Creed, his wife. I think she was in Star Trek. Actually, I'm positive she was in Star Trek. I know this. Uh, Fred Gwynn, who plays Judd Crandall. I love Fred Gwynn. He was um, in Monsters, in The Monsters. Oh, Fred Gwynn, I love him. Blaze Birdle and a twin playing Ellie. And Mika Hughes, who's amazing, playing Gage Creed. It was released on April the 21st of 1989 at running time 103 minutes, which I think it's 
I, I love that kind of time. And I know it sounds weird, but sometimes it's too long, sometimes it's too short. That's kind of perfect. The budget was 11.5 million and the box office was 57.5 million. That to me screams successful, successful enough anyway. There was a sequel made in 1992, which didn't do as well. But honestly, I love it. It's got Edward Furlong in it and it's just crazy. So I will definitely, definitely be covering it in this podcast just because Pet Cemetery 2 is a blast and it's so 90s. There was also a remake in 2019. So I usually don't really talk about remakes, but honestly, I didn't think this one was that bad. There's bad points in it, you know, you can nitpick and everything. It's not perfect. But honestly, I didn't think the remake was that bad at all. I rewatched it, it's currently on Netflix in the UK. So I rewatched it a couple of days ago, before, actually, about a week ago. Anyway, um, and I stand by what I said. I said. I didn't think it was that bad at all. There is also a really cool documentary about Pet Cemetery that you can find on YouTube called Unhearthed and Untold, The Path to Pet Cemetery. It was made in 2015 and it's like about an hour and a quarter, something like that. It's really cool if you want to have added infos to it. It's a good watch and it's on YouTube. So let's talk about the story itself. So the book is by Stephen King and apparently, from what he says, so it must be true, right? Because he wrote the book. He researched the Wendigo legend very intensely about this book. So the Wendigo is a Native American legend. It, apparently, it was created against a taboo of cannibalism during the winter months, which was really hard in North America. And I find that super interesting so the Vendigo is this mythical creature that comes back and it's all about greed and eating of the flesh, etc., etc. I'm not going to get into it. You can just go and look it up. But apparently that's what inspired him a lot. But what inspired him a lot also is his personal life, like a lot of his books. I knew to some degree that Pet Cemetery was inspired by events in his life. But then I researched a bit more and I thought, wow, there is so much more that is inspired by his real life. It's crazy. So first of all, Pet Cemetery is real. The actual place exists. <laughs> it's in Orrington. So when, at some point when Stephen King was studying, he moved to Orrington, a little town in Maine. And there, there is a real Pet Cemetery. He was in the neighbor's garden from where he was living in Horrington. He was living in a big house that apparently has been stood empty for years, exactly like the Creed family. So Stephen King moves in and there's that path in his neighbor's house, well, house, garden, sorry, that leads to what? A pet cemetery with the same spelling and everything. So if you watch that documentary I just talked to you about, you will have the old story about the spelling, who did it. I didn't even mention our pet cemetery was spelled. So pet is written P-E-T, as usual, 
But cemetery is massively misspelled and is spelled S-E-M-A-T-A-R-Y. Big misspelling there. And apparently it was just a kid that the other kids asked to spray paint because he was good with spray painting, apparently. Um, to, so they asked him to spray paint the sign and he completely misspelled it. But he makes it so much better and so much... It's now completely iconic. That kid with his spray paint must feel like a king right now. Anyway, it was just created by all the kids from Orrington as you know, a place to mourn their pets, which makes complete sense. And it's a very... I think kids need that, really. So he stayed in this house with this real pet cemetery. What other things was real was the road, was the trucks. So we'll see in the film that, obviously, the big road with the big trucks play a massive part. And that's all real. It was right by his house. There was a massive road that was created after and kept knocking the pets. And that's the reason the pet cemetery was created, exactly like in the real story. You have other stuff that inspired him. So, for example, in 1978, Stephen King's daughter, Scott Smirky, died on Route 15, which was the real road, knocked by a truck. He was buried in the real pet cemetery, and in the film you have a little Easter egg there, because in the intro you see all the grave markers, and one of the marker is for Smucky, and you know, it's to honor his memory, which is really, really sweet. Also, the character of Gage, who dies on the road, is based on Stephen King's son, who pretty much almost did die on the road. Apparently, he just went running, and Stephen King just grabbed him at the last minute um, to keep him from the road. So it's very, it's so much closer to reality than I thought it would be. I think at that point, it's important to note that Pet Cemetery, the book or the film, is really not just a horror. It's very emotionally charged. And that I know that many, many times I felt like watching it or rereading it. And I just couldn't bring myself to do it because it's heavy. Some, some stuff in it, some of the subjects are really, really heavy. Like obviously the death of a child or the death of a pet, which I think is also very heavy. Like some people will dismiss it. I'm not one of them. Peter Stein, who is the director of photography on the film, also worked on the second Friday the 13th. And he said he didn't want to do horror anymore. It's like that's, that wasn't really a thing. And that's the only horror he wanted to do was Friday the 13th, the second one. And he wasn't really up for doing Pet Cemetery Until Fred Gwynn, who plays Judd Crandall, actually went and had a chat with him and told him it was a film about life and death. And he talked to Peter Stein about his own son who drowned, which when I think about it, like this actor playing in Pet Cemetery with his son having drowned must have been so heavy. And he does talk about it. And he said to Peter Stein that he wouldn't do it if he was exploitative. Peter Stein says that convinced him to do the film because it wasn't just one of those horror 
slasher exploitative about death or gory it wasn't just about that it was really about life and death and if somebody like Fred Gwynn in his situation would do it then you know it would be all good for it. Stephen King had a few conditions about selling the right to his book to be made into a film. So the first condition was that he was the one to write the screenplay. So he would have control of the screenplay. And the second condition that was really important to him was that he had to be shot in Maine, where he lives and where all these books takes place. And Maine is very important to him. But at that time, he had a little bit of backlash because a few of the adaptation of his book was filmed in Los Angeles and people in Maine was a little bit, well, you know, you very much about Maine, but all the money is being made in LA or Vancouver or something like that, other locations, while, you know, the action takes place in Maine and that's not super fair. So his condition was that it was shot in Maine to, you know, honor the place really, mainly, but also it was going to boost the economy and it was a way to give back to Maine because Maine gave him so much, so much inspiration. And that was a way to give back to the states and to the locals. So it was filmed in Maine and a lot of locals were cast as extra and it did boost the economy a hell of a lot. It was filmed in Ellsworth, which is 20 minutes from where Stephen King lived. So he could pop in, and he was actually popping into the set quite often and checking in, and apparently he was very nice and everything. It's also nice to note that even though some locals didn't like all the traffic and all the light pollution caused by the filming, really, it did bring back the economy to this place because tons of locals got cast as extras and even small parts and everything. So that was really good, and he did give back to Maine as promised. The rights of the film, originally they were sold to George Romero, who was considered, and I think Stephen King was pretty much on board with that, he was quite happy with that, but Romero turned out he had a previous engagement, he was working on Monkey Shines and the thing just didn't, it just didn't happen and he dragged and everything. And the screenplay sat in Paramount Pictures Studios for years and years and it was just not being made at all. And during the 80s, early 80s, mid 80s, all the horror film was, it was very slashers. Everything was slashers. And at some point it started dying down and they needed something to make a real difference with the slasher, but they didn't really have anything. So the studio basically said, we need a script right there, right now, like a perfect script, nothing to change. And it was there. And it was pushed again, and this time it was like, okay, let's make Pet Cemetery. So Stephen King met with the studio first choice, Mary Lambert, and yeah, it was all good. She got the she got the job. One of the reasons Mary Lambert was hired is because they needed a real difference in directing compared to the slashers. And Mary Lambert started as a painter. She directed music videos. She was very visual. She directed like videos for Madonna and everything. So she was quite on her, but she was very different to, for example, George Romero. As usual, I have tons more infos that I will be dripping in when I 
start talking about the movie. But before I jump in, I'm just going to address the score a little bit. So the score is by Elliot Goldenthal. I don't know if I pronounce his last name really well, if I'm completely honest. It was his first big score, so big deal, and apparently he was really into it. Uh, Mary Lambert, the director, says he was calling him, calling her sorry, in the middle of the night to play piano for hours when she was on the phone and everything. A bit of a pain in the ass, maybe. But, you know, he was really into it. His score is really good. It really creates a fairy tale vibe and a sense of innocence. You have like children's choir and you have that little piano music. It really is great. And then you have two songs by the Ramones. <laughs> and one of them is honestly one of my all time favorite songs in the world Pet Cemetery by the Ramones. Okay, let's do the film. Let's jump in. So the opening scene, it opens on the pet cemetery with all the old gravestones, which are made of junk, really, like bits of wood and bits of old cages and stuff like that. And you have this choir of little kids and the little piano that I just talked about. And you see a little skunk is so cute, is the cutest of skunk going through the forest and through the pet cemetery. And that gives you a real fairy tale vibe. It's a tale. It really is. And, you know, straight from the start, it's a dark tale, but you see it. You see it, the view of it. You just kind of see it from the top at some point. And you see the pet cemetery is made into circles like big circles, concentric circles, really, bigger from smallest in the middle. And they say later on, then the graves in the middle are the older ones. And through this old scene, you can hear little kids telling about their pets. It's basically the marker was written on the graves. No more he screams and hollers. He lived for five and 20 days and cost me $50. You also see the massive deadfall of dead trees that will be very important later. And then straight away, it cuts to one of those huge Orenco trucks. And it's a direct link to the road and it brings you to the house and the creed's arrival. And it looks so perfect. It's the perfect family. It's like a painting. And Mary Lambert, remember I said she comes from a background of painting and everything. And she says she wanted it like that, like a painting. And it really is the perfect family. Daddy, mommy, the little girl, the baby boy and the family cat. It also have a really cheesy bumper sticker saying, Have you hugged your medical practitioner today? He says MP, but that's what it stands for, because obviously Louis Creed is a doctor. The house wasn't built for the set. It existed before. Um, it was inhabited by a couple who was asked if he would be okay to use it. And they basically said, yeah, no problem, as long as you don't destroy anything or change everything. Or as long as everything is put back the way it was at the end of the film, yeah, that's cool, we'll just move over the road. And apparently the woman kept coming in and do her laundry because she still needed the house, like washing machine and stuff. But they were okay with it, they were cool. 
The only thing that was changed is they planted a big tree in the backyard to put a tire swing, which is going to happen in a second. And this tree, unfortunately, doesn't stand there anymore because it just didn't really take. They tried to water it and everything, but it just never really take. But that's the only thing they changed about the Creed house. Side note, like every time I watch something that takes place in New England, whether it's like Massachusetts or Maine or anywhere there, I die inside a little bit because those houses are so perfect. The architecture is just magnificent and I will never recover from it. That's it. Back to our little family. So Ellen, Ellie for short, the little girl, goes straight to the tire swings that she sees because why wouldn't you? It's a tire swing. It's awesome. And she sees the path that we will learn leads to Pet cemetery, And she shouts, Mommy, Daddy, I see a path. And then she falls, like the rope break, and she falls off a swing and she injures her knee. And she makes a huge drama about it. She screams like she's being slaughtered. So, uh, two, like, first of all, I don't think it's a coincidence that she falls off the swing and that she hurts herself as soon as she sees the path. It's like an omen. And you won't convince me of the opposite. So the mom and dad runs to her, Leave the toddler, because, you know, I mean, it's a massive garden, but it's still open on the road where there is massive truck. And they just run to Ellie and leave Gage behind, which, honestly, every time I see it, I'm like, what the hell? Just grab your kid, grab your kid. And the kid, he goes and sees the cat, church, and then he starts wandering off because he's a toddler. <laughs> That's what he's going to do. And he's almost on the road, but the neighbor grabs him at the last minute and bring it back to the creed. And that's how we get introduced to Judd and his wonderful main accent. I live just across the road. You want to watch out for that road. Them damn trucks go back and forth all day and most of the night. I think his character is my favorite character of the film with the cat. Actually, he was almost not cast because people thought he wouldn't be taken seriously because of his part in the monsters. But turn out, it works brilliant. Honestly, it works. It also seems like he was a really cool person. He wrote and illustrated children's books. So he gave some to the little kid on the set. And they look really great. I checked them out. They look really cool. And he died in 93. So not that long after the film was released, really. Um, the main accent. So main, we said before that... One of the conditions Stephen King had was that he was filming Maine, and obviously Maine is a huge inspiration to him. And again, in this film, it's a character on its own. You have all the Maine accent, you have all the Maine nature, the fog, the moss, the lakes, everything. You just, it's Maine. So you have another character in the film with a huge Maine accent, which is the character of Missy Dendridge, which is pretty much... Not really them made, but she ironed their clothes and stuff like that. Side note, I stand by what I said about Maine, but there is absolutely no lake in this film. I don't know what happened, and I'm sorry. Quick word about the kids in the film. So Ellen Creed is played by identical twins, but only one is credited for some reason, with Blaze Beardle. I actually don't even know the name of her sister. It's pretty bad. They should have credited both of them. Anyway, it was often the case at the time when films or series or whatever had children actors 
to use twins because it was easier and also they just brought like child labor laws at, at that point. You were only allowed to work them a certain amount of hours as it should be. I mean, it's a good thing, not a startled bad thing. So basically when they were doing a scene, they would work like the certain amount of hours and then the twin would take over. Also, you know, like one twin would be maybe better at talking and learning lines and the other kid would be better at some other stuff. So they would share the load like that. So that's what happened with Ellen Creed. Also, I'm just going to say very quick that for years, I only knew the French dubbed version of Pet Cemetery, and the dubbing is horrible, and I hated her. Like, the way she was dubbed was so whingy and crap, and I was like, oh, I hate this kid so much. And it's only for the past few years, when I started watching it in English again, um, that I was like, actually, she's not that bad at all. <laughs> she's all right. She's an all right kid. She's actually quite funny, but like the French version made me hate it and it made me hate a lot of other things about the film which made me believe for years that's, that this film was a lot cheesier and shittier than what it was well actually it was just a matter of dubbing honestly always try to watch the film in their original version because it's so much better the little kid who plays Gage uh, Miko Hughes is less than three years old. I think it's two and a half, maybe, in the film. And he plays amazing for his age. It's just, he's so young and he's amazing. He nails it. They wanted twins, again, because of all what I mentioned before. But the director and the casting director really fought to just have him because he was just so good. And, you know, he got it. His parents were on set. And he did brilliant. They also did this quite unusual but really cool stuff where they filmed his scenes in chronological order because usually the scenes are just filmed a bit like in whatever order. But the, his scenes, they kept it that way so they could gain his trust and make him more comfortable as time goes. And by the time the other scenes came by, he was more trusting and more comfortable. So I think that's really neat. They also had like tons of cats to play church, who's a British blue cat, which is awesome. It's one of my favorite. Uh, so I think they had seven or nine cats, I can't remember. And they were all doing different stuff, which is cool. So it's their first night at the house and everything is well so far. Louis tucks his little curl into bed with the cat, church, who sleeps with Ellie because it's a cat. And then he goes outside to check the tire swing that he repaired and have a look at the path. He just have a look at it. It doesn't go on it. When he is by the tire swing, church scare him. There's not that many jump scares in this film, but that's one of them. And that's really weird because we just saw the cat sleeping with Ellie and suddenly he's outside. But never mind. I'm going to glide over that. And then you see Judd is on his porch. So Judd lives directly opposite their house, um, which is just separated by this massive road. So he decides to go and join Judd for beer on his porch, having a little bit of man-to-man bonding time with the neighbor. All these times you see massive trucks passing on the road and it's very intimidating. And Judd explains to Louise that he better get his cat fixed because he's, otherwise he's going to be wandering in the road and that the road is responsible for the pet cemetery. And that's the first time Louis will hear about it. 
You know that path your wife commented on? That road and those Orenko trucks, the two main reasons is there. Where does it lead? Pet Sanitary. Then the next day, when they wake up, we get introduced to the character of Missy Dendridge, who is, like I said, the, the woman who comes and iron their sheets or do their laundry or something like that. And straight away, you can tell it's a pretty pessimist character and she's kind of gloomy and grumpy. Wish I had a doctor around with my stomach pain so bad. <laughs> Guess I'll never be lucky. Hell, I ain't married anyone. What a ray of sunshine Missy Dendridge is. So when they all arrive at the start and Judd introduced himself, they asked him what the path was and Judd told them it was an interesting story and he will take them there. So they all set up on a little hike and followed Judd to the pet cemetery. He didn't tell them what it was, so I guess except from Louis, who was at his house the night before, they all have the merry surprise to find out what it is at the end of the path. And they all react pretty good. Well, Gage doesn't really care because he's a baby. But Ellen is, you know, little Ellie. She's pretty curious. She's all right with it. But then straight away, we see that Rachel, the wife, has a huge problem with it and with death in general. I told you it's a bad road, Lois. It's killed a lot of pets and a lot of kids are unhappy. There's something good come of it. This place. Couldn't plant nothing but corpses here anyway, I guess. How can you call it a good thing? A graveyard for pets killed in the road, built by broken-hearted children. Well, they have to learn about death somehow, now don't they, Mrs. Creed? Why? She's clearly upset, so she takes the baby and she goes away. Meanwhile, Ellie is just exploring and she doesn't really grasp the concept of what it was, but she seems to think it's pretty cool. So Judd chose Ellie the grave where he buried his own dog, Spot, and he tells her, what's a pet cemetery? And he tells her, it's a place where the dead speak. So she freaks out a little bit and he's like, oh, no, not like that. It's a place of rest and speaking, which I thought was really, really beautiful. Later at night, we see Ellie is finally getting a little bit upset because he got her thinking and he got her thinking about the fact that a cat might be dying. And Louis, who is a doctor, is trying to explain to her about metabolism and about the fact that it's normal that animals don't live as long, but it's not especially a sad thing and everything. And Ellie is all about God somehow. And in the book, it's explained a bit more clearly that he doesn't know where the hell that came from because neither him or his wife are religious and they don't especially believe in heaven or hell or anything. So he explains he doesn't know why Ellie believes in that, but she's pretty set on it. She gets really upset at the fact that God might take her cat. He's not God's cat, he's my cat. But God gets only if he wants one, not mine. Eventually, he managed to put her in bed with church and she falls asleep. And then he cuts back to breakfast, but I don't think it's actually the next day. I think some time I probably has passed a little bit and he took the decision to get the cat fixed because obviously he upsets Ellie and he saw what he did to Ellie. So he doesn't want church to go in the road. Ellie is very nervous about starting school and about church operation. And she just goes, I don't want 
church to get his nuts cut, Daddy? Both Louis and Rachel laugh at it, but they also like, where did you hear that? And turn out it's Ray of Sunshine, Missy Dendridge, who taught him this wonderful saying. So she's still freaked out, though. She's just like, oh, what if something goes wrong in the operation? And Louis like, nah, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. It's just a little operation. And she asks him, like, do you promise it's going to be fine? And he can't answer because he just poses because he's a doctor. He knows there's a risk. But Rachel steps in and she just forces Louis to make the promise to Ellie. Don't shilly-shally, Louis. Give the little girl a promise. When he goes to Rachel to say bye, though, he does tell her very uh, seriously that it's fine. But if anything does go wrong, she will be the one to explain to Ellie why a cat died. So he leaves to go to work and drop the cat off. And Missy Dendridge arrives and she mentions again that she has a really bad belly. Actually, she doesn't even mention it. She just holds her belly and she's visibly in pain. So Louis offers to take a look if she wants to, and she just, nah. She's like, nah, I'll be fine, it'll, it'll be fine. Rachel rushes out to say bye to Louis because they just had a little bit of an argument, so she wants to make sure they're all right, and she wishes him a great Thursday at school because he's, um, he's a doctor, but he's going to start on the university campus, so that's why she says, have a Thursday at school, like for Ellie. And he cuts straight to a scene of total chaos. There's somebody who's being carried by tons of students, like way too many students that needed. And that person has his head all open up, it's bleeding, you can see his brain, it's gross. And he's getting carried into Louis' office and clearly he's in a very bad shape, he's not going to make it. So, you know, like Louis kind of shoes off people, do the curtains and try to resuscitate him. His name is Victor Pasco. Unfortunately, he doesn't make it, so Louis just sit a little bit defeated. And Victor just comes back to life for a little minute and grabs Louis' arm and just says, The soil of a man's heart is stony. Louis. I mean, thank you for the cryptic message. It really helps. It will help later on, sort of, I guess. Anyway, so Louis wonders how he knows his name, but Victor Pasco just says he'll come to him later and then dies for real this time. No going back up. And who doesn't like a guy who keeps his promises? So it's nighttime and Louis wakes up from a nightmare and Victor is here. Hello! Surprise! He's like a sort of ghost, but he still looks exactly the same as when he was brought to Lewis, so a bit of a very dead ghost with alpha head, really. He tells Louis to follow him because they have places to go, so Louis follow him, and they set off to the pet cemetery. Personally, I always found Victor... He's creepy, but he's always kind of nice and comforting, I find. I don't know why. Uh, it's really the vibe I got for him. He's a sort of ghost, but he's like a good ghost. Actually, that's exactly, I just realized that's exactly what Ellie says later in the film. So, yeah, on the creepy side, but not completely, you know, he's not evil. He also tells Louis that he wants to help him because 
Louis tried to help him. So that's nice. It's like his good deed is giving back to Louis. They walk down the path in the night and the fog. And that's really pretty. I really like that. And they arrive to the pet cemetery. And Victor tells him... This is the place where the dead speak. I want to wake up. I want to wake up. That's all. Don't go on, Doc. No matter how much you may feel you have to, do not go on to the place where the dead walk. And he points to that massive pile of dead wood, which apparently was at least six truckloads of dead wood, some stamps. There's still some there, actually, where they on the film set. So it shows him that, and obviously the pet cemetery being the place where the dead speak refers to what Judd was saying earlier. And then he warns him a little bit further about not crossing that barrier. The barrier was not meant to be crossed. It's not my fault that you died. You were as good as dead when they brought you in. The ground beyond is solid. Yeah, the message is pretty clear, but guess what? He's not going to get it. He's not. So he curls into a ball and falls asleep. And then the next day he wakes up, as in he woke up for a nightmare. But when he pulls the sheets, he realizes he has mud on his feet. Uh-oh, bad sign. The time passes and it's now Thanksgiving. So Rachel is going to visit her parents in Chicago and she's going to take the kids with her. We gather Rachel's dad don't get along with Louis at all, so Louis stays behind. He's quite happy to stay behind. When they, once they left, Judd actually calls Louis and tells him, unfortunately, he thinks he's got church on his lawn and is dead. So Louis go and check it out. Again, we see a big truck pass on the road. It's constant. And honestly, it's horrible. I would hate it. As much as the house is beautiful and I would love it, that road, oh, horrible. So Louis goes to Judd, and yes, it is church, unfortunately. And the ground is kind of frozen, so he pulls the cat off the ground. And it's just rips kind of thing. It's not gory, it's just, it just makes a noise, like clearly is dead. Judd asks him what he's going to do, and Louis says he's probably going to lie for a bit and wait until Ellie comes back home because he doesn't want to ruin their holidays and she's going to be devastated. And Judd does this look on his face like he's really thinking and he tells him maybe there's a better way. He tells him to meet him at nightfall or something like that to go and bury the cat. So they take the cat in a bin bag and they both set off to the pet cemetery. But when they arrive there, Louis is not in on the plan. He doesn't know what's happening because he wants to bury Church in the pet cemetery. Like, that's what I think is happening, right? But Judd tells him, no, no. And he carries on and he climbs that horrible, massive deadfall of trees. Oh, look, the barrier that you're not meant to cross. Well, you're going to cross it, aren't you? Of course you are. Yeah, he crosses it. So he climbs the deadfall and Judd tells him, just don't stop, just don't look down, because it's the kind of tangle of dead trees that if you fall, you die. And how don't you fall? But it's a bit more explained in the book that really the trick is to not look down and have faith in it, and you just know where to put your feet. 
So he does that, but Louis looks down at some point and falls, but he's still okay, but he falls on the other side. So they made it through the barrier that wasn't meant to be crossed. They walk towards the forest. It's got like horrible, it's got fog and horrible night noises, and some of them are animals. But some of them, you're like, uh, this is not normal. And Judd is just like, it's just a loon, which is like a bird that lives in Maine. Judd keeps saying, not much longer now, not much longer now. And he feels like they just walking for hours and hours. By the way, the forest is absolutely beautiful. It's just roots and fog and beautiful light. And I live in Wales and it just reminds me of the forest around here. It's just completely mystical. I love it. And then the scenery starts to change and becomes all rocks and everything. Turns out they filmed in an old stone quarry and there was no safety, nothing, when they jump from stone to stone. So it's quite impressive, really. Louis asks again, like, are we, are we there yet? <laughs> Basically. And Jed then says... Almost there, Louis. You keep saying that. This time I'm in it. And this really makes me laugh because it's, it's exactly what I do when I tattoo people. And, you know, they're in a little bit of pain and you're just like, yeah, don't worry. Just 10 minutes, just five minutes. And you don't mean it. What you mean is, yeah, just half an hour. Oh, and then we'll do the highlights as well and the white. But then they finally arrive at the real cemetery, which is actually Indian Micmac's burial ground. So you see it from the top and it's really beautiful. It's got loads of circles made out of stone, but there's lines crossing the circle. And that's very interesting because it's obviously a sort of mirrored version of the pet cemetery. And the pet cemetery is all in the middle of the trees and it's very green, very organic, very peaceful in a way. And you have the circles, but none of them cross. So it's like a symbol of closure. And opposite to that, you have the Micmac's burial ground, which is in the middle of a very stony um, site. And it's all dry and all the circles are made out of stone. There's nothing that grows there. And there's those lines crossing all those circles. So the circle, you don't have that closure. It's just there. Um, apparently, there was a lot of research on Micmac's done for the film. So they have stone cans and sort of wooden tripods with an animal skull on the top. And apparently it was those tripods with the animal skull on top was burned and the animal was the spirit animal that would carry the soul of the person off to the other realm. So all that apparently is pretty accurate. They really did their research there, which is really cool. I didn't know that. I just think it was all made up until I really did research a few years ago. So Judd explains to Louis where they are, that it's the Micmac's burial ground, and what they are here to do. He tells him that they will bury the cat here. But it, do it doesn't explain to Louis what will happen. It definitely doesn't tell him anything about the cat coming back. And he also just sits down and starts chain-smoking when Louis is digging what looks like stones, and obviously it's going to take a lot of time. Soil's thin, but you'll manage. I'm gonna sit over yonder and have a smoke. I'd help you, but you gotta do it yourself. 
each marriage is out. They walk back in the dead of night, and when they arrive to Louis's house, Louis miss uh, he misses a phone call just by a second, which obviously he knew was Rachel. Uh, so he's a bit annoyed, and Judd tells him when they call back, not a word about what we did tonight. Louis can sense something is not right. What did we do tonight, Judd? What we did, Lois, was a secret thing. Women are supposed to be the ones who are good at keeping secrets. But any woman who knows anything at all will tell you she's never seen into a man's heart. The soil of a man's heart, Lois, is stonier. Which is obviously what Victor Pascal told Louis before dying for the second time, for real. He also touches to what I was saying about the film being about secrets being kept by men from women for centuries. The next morning, Louis finds Church in the garage. And he's all issy and his eyes are all like that sort of green-yellow reflection thing. So the cat's eyes do that naturally, like sheep's eyes and everything. They have reflectors in them. So apparently to get this effect, it's not CGI or, well, no, obviously not CGI, but it's not a special effect. They just used a mirror to direct the light to reflect into the cat's eyes. Side note. I took a picture of my cat yesterday when he jumped on my shoulder and he did exactly that. Coincidence? I think not. Louis lures Church with food to examine him and check if he has major injuries or something like that and just says he stinks and he's got bits of bin bag stuck in his whiskers. Gotta chew his way out. And Church ended up scratching his face, which, to be fair, I find pretty normal because he's just turning him all in all kind of ways and is being really annoying to the cat. So pretty much any cat would have done that, in my opinion. Louis goes to Judd and is visibly upset, understandably. He's a bit shaken and he's trying to make excuses for what happens. He tells Judd, you know, maybe, maybe he wasn't dead. Maybe I buried him, you know, and he just crawled out and I thought he was dead. Maybe he was just stunned. And Judd offers him a beer, which I appreciate. And tells him, like, nah, come on, come on, Louis. He pulled him out of the frost and he tells him, life things don't do that, which is very true. Judd also tells him how he heard about the Micmac burial ground. So you have a whole story about how he knew about the place. And the story about his dog Spot, which he mentioned earlier at the start of the film when he took Ellen and all the family, actually, to the pet cemetery. And he said, that's where my dog is buried. At the start, he says he died of old age, but we learned that it wasn't the case at all. It was the ragman told me about the place. He was half Micmac himself. He knew how I felt about my dog, Spot. Spot had got caught in barbed wire and infected. When he died, I thought I was going to die. But he also tells him that when Spot came back, he wasn't the same and his mum was with him. So she saw him and she freaked out completely. Chad, come and get your dog! He sticks to the ground you buried him in! 
yeah, not cool at all. So they had to kill him again straight away and then obviously buried him in the right cemetery where we find him at the start of the film. Just for the record, so we see a flashback of everything that's happening and the kid who plays Judd, who is a local kid, oh, poor kid, man, apparently he got teased so much because in this scene, he, you know, he runs out of the house and he calls his dog, Spot. But they had to redo the scene nine times because he keeps calling the dog Judd, which is his own name. And he was just like not getting it. And apparently that followed him through high school and everything. Like his teacher was like, hey, I remember you. I remember when you did that. Poor kid. Understandably, Louis is a little bit peed off because he's like, if you knew, why did you make me do it? And Judd says that he did it because Ellie wasn't ready for a favorite pet to die and she needed more time to accept the death of a pet. He also says that the cemetery has an hold on people, which is very true, and he will get into that a bit later in the film. Uh, Louis asks him if anybody ever buried a person there, which is obviously the $10,000 question, and Judd freaks out, spills his beer, oh no, and tells him, like, God, no, of course not. Of course he's lying. Louis comes home, tries to relax, but poor Church drops a dead rat in his bath, which is not the greatest thing ever. Clearly, Church is not as friendly as before. The family comes back from Chicago and straight away Ellie jumps in her dad's arm and asks how church is because she had a bad dream. Daddy, is church all right? Yes, I guess so. He was asleep on the porch when I left. Oh, there you go. I had a dream about him. I dreamed he got hit by a car and you and Mr. Crandall buried him in the pet cemetery. Scarily accurate, and it's not the only time she's going to have that kind of dream. So clearly she has a little bit of psychic abilities buried in there. See what I did? Buried. <laughs> when they come back home, she will also notice the smell coming out of her cat, and she's not too impressed with that. In the next scene, we see Missy Dendridge, the foul-mouthed help lady, who hangs herself. And honestly, I find this scene a bit brutal because she looks so frail anyway. And she's just so matter of fact about it. And there's, there's a really cool uh, moment where the actress explained how she worked to get that in the documentary. But yeah, she basically writes a note that says, I am sure I have cancer. I cannot face the pain. Sorry. And she pins it to her sweater and she jumps off the table and hangs herself. So we skip to a funeral, which is conducted by Stephen King himself, Cameo. And Louis is there, Judd is there, Rachel stayed at home because obviously she can't face death. She has a big problem with death at all, so she's completely hell at home. Ellie is there, though, and we assume it's the first time she gets confronted to a funeral, but she seems to be completely fine. And she says her mom is not, her mom is hell. When they leave the funeral, Judd also asks Louis how his cat is, and Louis answers, it's not my cat, it's Ellie's cat, and Judd tells him, it's your cat now. Back home, Ellie asks about Missy and if she will go to heaven, so pretty much the same conversation that they had earlier in the film about the cat, 
but Ellie is a little bit more settled. And Louis also is a bit nicer, like he talks about death and faith and, you know, he says it's possible that there's something after. He's a bit less, like, medical about it. And Rachel listens from the kitchen. And when she joins Louis later, she tells him that she really appreciates what he did. And she finally opens opens up a little bit on why she's so bad about death. So she tells him, you know my sister Zelda, who died of spinal meningitis? And of course Louis knows about that, but she's going to open more a little bit and tells him why it's so bad and why she feels so horrible. So Zelda had spinal meningitis, which is pretty hardcore. And Rachel tells Louis she was in the back bedroom, like a dirty secret. And that's exactly that. You see flashbacks to young Rachel caring to the horribly deformed Zelda. Zelda in the film is played by a young man, he was only 18 at the time, called Andrew Ubastek, and is bloody perfect at it. He really wanted to play it, he really got into it, and apparently there was hours and hours of makeup. He's got like a sort of rubber half suit, so it's only his head, hands and back, but it's still a lot, and you have all that, and then you have all the makeup going on top of it, so apparently he spent hours and hours on the chair and then he couldn't take it off for like another like eight hours because they had to remove it bit by bit and but he really got into it and the guy who did the special effect who I forgot it was now uh says that it doesn't matter you can have the best rubber suit on it was also his attitude and the voice and the way he moved and you really feel that it really does a great job and the fact that he's a man as well it just you don't see it really but it brings some extra creepiness and some extra feeling that something is not right and it just works rachel admits to louis that she wanted her to die and probably so did her parents because it was just long and they were, she was suffering, but they were suffering. And obviously, you don't really admit to that, but that's how she felt. And she felt really guilty about it as well. And she tells Louis how she was left with Zelda, like to take care of Zelda when her parents actually... It's, I don't think it's said in the film where her parents are, but in the book, I think they've gone to the neighbors to a sort of soiree or something like that, like a dinner. She's very young. And she cares for Zelda, and Zelda is choking, and she doesn't really know what to do, but it's also said in the book that actually she kind of does nothing on purpose. Like, she doesn't really know what to do anyway, but would she if she knew? She's not sure. And Zelda dies horribly, choking. Rachel just runs out in the street screaming, Zelda's dead, Zelda's dead. And she said to Louis that, she, everybody thought she was crying, but she thinks maybe she was laughing because she was so relieved that her sister died. Obviously, the guilt that comes with that and the traumatic experience is unreal. So Louis tells her that if he needed another reason to hate her parents, that was it. So now we understand a little bit more where all the trauma comes from. In the next scene, we see a big Orenka truck again, but this time we follow the driver. He seems pretty happy and he sings to Shinae's a punk rocker by the Ramones. 
which is an awesome tune. And it seems to be driving really, really fast. Fun fact, apparently it was only driving like eight miles an hour, but, you know, they do effects and stuff. In parallel to that, you see the Creed family injured, who's pretty much part of the family by now, having a lovely picnic. And again, it looks exactly like a painting. So they have this lovely picnic around the table and they're flying a kite and they're all having a lot of fun. In parallel, you see the driver accelerate. You know some crap is going to happen. Little Gage is flying the kite by himself and it's a big moment like, oh, why is flying the kite? Ellie wants to fly the kite, but she's not allowed just yet because it's Gage's moment. And Gage dropped the reel of the kite and Ellie goes. Got away from that numb shit! I guess Missy Dendridge's memory is living. So they all laugh and Louis turns around and Ellie is making a bit of a scene like, is it my turn now? I want it to be my turn. And they're just laughing. But meanwhile, Gage is just following the line that I dropped and that goes away from, from him because the kite is flying. So it's the second time, really, that they just kind of leave him to his own device. But to be honest, it's, it's what is so tragic in this film and in this story is... It can happen in seconds. Accident can happen in seconds. How many times, how many stories did you read about kids drowning in pools or anything like that just because their parents turned away from like three seconds? By the time they realize he's going towards the road, Louis runs like hell, clearly, but it's too late and comes one of the most brutal death scenes I've seen, if I'm honest. It's not gory. You see nothing. All you see is the truck coming towards you like if you were Gage. So Gage point of view. But the truck looks so huge and goes so fast. And you know the kid is in the road because you kind of see the point of view of the driver for a second as well. And you see the kid in the road. It's a doll. Um, and then all you see is just a bloody sneakers flying. But it's so brutal the brutality of it is so real that honestly it's hard to watch sometimes it, and there's virtually no blood but it's just hard so louis screams like hell because he didn't get to his kids and you have photographs flashing at the same time of them as a happy family it's ugh, it's really emotional the pictures transition to Louis looking at pictures at home. So they are back at home. Rachel is said to be sedated upstairs. Judd is here, he's kind of helping. Ellie is carrying a picture of her engaged and tells Judd that she will carry it until, quote, unquote, God lets Gage come back, which is yeah, pretty heavy. And Louis is totally checked out. We go to the funeral and Rachel's dad creates the worst scene ever. He starts accusing Louis to be good for nothing and that it would have never happened with somebody else. And he punches him in the face and, and ends up falling onto the coffin. It's horrible. It's really like not what you want at a funeral, obviously. Um, they start screaming, everybody's upset. Louis, later on, like Louis puts Ellie to bed and she goes on again about God and God could really take it back if he really, really wanted to. And you can tell Louis is struggling inside because 
I don't think it was his idea from the get-go to bury Gage in the cemetery, but the fact that Eddie keeps saying it, it definitely plants the idea in, the, in his head, if he didn't already have it. When Louis goes back to his bedroom, Rachel is asleep on the bed, and Church is laying on her chest, and he just hiss at Louis. Fuck off, airball. He goes back to the kitchen, looking very tired, and Judd comes in. And Louis tells him, like, this is not the right time, basically. But Judd stays, because... He said he knows Louis thinking about it. I'm not going to do it, girl. I was just thinking about it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so to try to stop him doing what he wants to do, he tells him about the story of Timmy Batterman. So somebody was buried in the cemetery. Timmy Batterman was killed on his way back home from World War II. And... Judd says his father was so grief-struck that he buried his son up there before he, quote-unquote, had the chance to get to the bottom of the truth. So Louis is like, okay, fair enough, I'll bite. Where is the bottom of the truth? Sometimes that is better. And boom, we have the film tagline. It's on the poster, it's on everything. You get flashbacks from TV Batman, who is kind of gross a little bit like a zombie, and loads of people see him, so you can't even hide him. It just all goes wrong, and eventually he says the men of the town, so again, it's all that thing about men keeping the secret and everything. The men of the town decide to stop what's happening and to burn the place. Timmy and his dad burn in the place. Uh, his dad tries to get him out and Timmy just keeps repeating that he wants to die and that it's better. Again, Judd repeats that sometimes that is better and he explains that the place might make Gage dies because Judd introduced him to the power, like a chain reaction. So Judd feel, he feels really guilty. He thinks he murdered Gage. He says that if he didn't take Louis to the graveyard to start with, it would never have happened. In the next scene, you see Rachel and Ellie living with Rachel's parents uh, at the airport. They're going to Chicago. Rachel does apologize to Louis. Honestly, I would have never taken it, but it's to their own. Ellie says she doesn't want to go because she had another bad dream about Daddy, Gage and Pax Cow which we will later understand that it's Victor Pascal, but she just doesn't know how to pronounce it, so she says Pascal. She really wants Louis to come with them, and Louis says he will just join them in three days. He looks completely shell-shocked. He just looks completely blank this whole time. Louis goes straight to the graveyard, straight to the cemetery where Gage is buried with a shovel. And he sits by the grave and just starts contemplating things, says what happened is wrong and should never have happened. And at that moment, Victor Pascal actually appears to him and warns him against what's going to happen. Louis is totally delusional at that point. He keeps saying that if he doesn't go right, he can always put him back to sleep and nobody will know. But he looks completely... He's making all these excuses in his head. You can see it. He's trying to convince himself. In parallel of that, you see Ellie having nightmares in Chicago and she wakes up and tells Rachel, her mom, Pax Cow says daddy's going to do something bad and she explains to Rachel... 
is a good ghost, which he is. He really is a good ghost. And he was near Louis when his soul was this, this. And she can't say it and she starts crying. Turns out it's because it's a word she doesn't know. And Victor talks to her in her sleep. Rachel walks out wondering where she knows that name from. She's like, Pascal, why is it? And then Victor appears behind her. And she can't see Victor at all, but he will appear behind her a few times to kind of suggest thing. He can do that. He can suggest thing to people, even though they don't do it. Possibly because they're adult, even though Louis sees him. So maybe not. So Victor is behind Rachel and he suggests to her his correct name. And then he clicks and Rachel is like, oh my God, yes, it's Victor Pascal. And he says the word was discorporated. Louis was next to him when he saw discorporated. And she runs down straight away to call Louis. But Louis doesn't answer the phone because Louis is digging his son's grave. So we see Rachel trying to call him again. And at this moment, she's still at her parents' house. And we see this really weird painting on the wall above her of a character in a blue so frilly dress is it a dress i'm not sure because it's maybe a boy on the picture i'm really not sure like a blue garment and a top hat and a cat and it will be interesting later so rachel is on the phone and freaking out because louis is not answering and (laughs) a mom is trying to reassure her by saying probably went out for a hamburger or a chicken dinner, dear. You know how men are when they're alone. Yeah, you know, every time men are alone, that's exactly what they do. They just run for a hamburger or chicken dinner, right? Especially when they just buried their son. Like, that's the obvious answer. That really just makes me laugh. So Rachel calls Judd to check if Louis is with him. So obviously Judd is like, "Uh oh, no, he's not with me. And she says she's coming home, even though Judd tries to tell her not to. We still see Louis digging. It takes a while. Uh, He's hiding from the cops, looking like he's completely lost his mind, to be honest. Judd sits on his porch because he thinks it's his role to undo it. So he's just looking at the Creed's house, waiting for any signs of anything. Louis managed to get Gage out of the grave and he just hugs his son in the graveyard. It's it's really sad, really. He says that he swears it's going to be all right, which of course is not going to be. I found that interested that he's just like, I swear, I swear it's going to be all right, because that's exactly not what he did when Church got the operation at the start. He completely refused to give the promise that things were going to be all right, because he told Rachel... And even Ellie, there's always a percent of chance that things can go wrong, so he doesn't want to make any promises. But this time he's completely lost it and he's promising, he swears, he swears it's going to be all right. Rachel is making his way home, so she's in a plane and she gets this weird nightmares where she sees Zelda saying that Erwin Gage will get her for letting them die. And all this time she's got Victor by her side helping her so for example Victor prevents her from missing a connection fly by holding the door and everything Judd actually dozes off on his porch because I guess it's taking ages and we see Louis taking Gage 
to the burial ground, to the Micmac burial ground. Pascal Victor still helps Rachel by helping her renting a car, but the car breaks down. So at that point, I kind of saw it as a battle of wills. Like you have Pascal who's the good ghost and on the side of Rachel trying to help and always trying to prevent Louis and everything, really trying to not make that happen. And you have the power that holds the pet cemetery, or rather the Micmac's burial ground, that kind of got to Judd to show Louis what it is and everything, and obviously got to Louis. And right now it's also trying to prevent Rachel to get to Louis, so the car breaks down is definitely not a coincidence. Louis has successfully buried Gage, so he goes back home and he just collapses on the bed. We see Gage pushing the stone from the cairn, so we already know that he comes back, and he comes back super quick. Rachel walks on the side of the road because her car broke down, and that's kind of a sad irony because she gets picked up by an Orinka truck. So that guy is helping her, and she's very grateful. She has to thank him as well, knowing that it is an Orinka truck that just killed her son. So it's kind of ironic, but it gives her a lift anyway. Gage comes back home. We we can't really see him. We just see his little feet or something. But Louis is still sleeping. He's exhausted. So Gage goes straight to his doctor bag. And we see him takes a scalpel. And Church is with him because they're obviously in the same team now. Team No Death. Judd finally wakes up and sees there is light in the Creed's house. And his first instinct is to go and find Louis, because that's what he's supposed to do. But he sees little footprints, like muddy footprints in his house, so he knows straight away what's happening. He also sees a ball being thrown, and he has a little giggle. That, that's not creepy at all. And Gage's voice tells him, let's play hide and go seek which is odd, like I always thought it was just play hide and seek, not go seek. But anyway, not the point at all. He goes and looks for Gage upstairs and is clever enough to grab a knife. He actually tells like, oh, I've got something for you. And he has a knife, a pocket knife. So he starts to look for Gage upstairs in his bedroom and he bends over to look under the bed. He gets distracted by church, who meows or something like that, or hiss. And Gage is under the bed and cuts his Achilles tendon with his scalpel. It's a very uh, scene. I hate it. I'm like, oh, no, sorry. Uh, It's really well done. It's really well done because of the position he's in. The tendon just really splits. It's bleh. Judd is down and Gage just jumps on him, slashes his mouth with his scalpel and starts hitting his neck. So you remember at the start of the episode when I told you they filmed the scene in chronological order for Miko Hughes, who plays Gage, to get comfortable and everything? That was really great, but he's, he was still just a two years old. So they explained to him that it was a prosthetic and he was not biting in real skin and he was all fake. So he, he kind of got that, we suppose. And I think he probably, considering how he does it, probably kind of had fun with it. But Fred Gwynn, who plays Judd, obviously had to react. So when Gage bites in his neck, he freaks out and he just goes, you know. And poor little Miko Hughes 
wasn't ready for that and apparently he completely freaked out and his parents had to like come and get him poor little guy he was doing so good meanwhile the truck drops rachel at her house and the driver says bye and victor is in the passenger seat and he also says it's the end of the line for him and he says bye even though she can't hear him She's about to go to her house, but then she hears Zelda and Gage laughs from Judd's house. So she goes there. Church is there on the porch as well, which is finding a bit weird, but she definitely goes in. She calls for Judd inside the house and she hears a moan from upstairs because he's in trouble, poor guy. She goes up and she hears Zelda again saying her name, calling her, saying, Rachel... And she sees Zelda in Judd's bedroom in the corner, saying she's going to twist her back like hers and she'll never get out of bed again. It's terrifying. Zelda, at that point, wears the blue dress we saw in the painting at Rachel's parents. So we know, well, we know it's not the real Zelda, clearly, because she's dead. But I don't know, there's that kind of like mix with that painting, which is really weird. She morphs into Gage. We don't see her morph into Gage, but, you know, she changes into Gage, who's also wearing the dress, but he also has the top hat and a cane, just like in the painting. And he's saying to Rachel, he brought her something, which is his scalpel. And I really wonder if it's a sort of reference to Judd saying he's got something for him and he's got his knife. I think it is. Honestly, I think it is. Rachel kneels to hug her son because I think when you start upset, you don't even think straight. So she just goes to hug him and we hear him stab her. At that moment, Louis wakes up very suddenly, probably because he has a little bit of a connection with Rachel. The film kind of implied that everybody has a little bit of psychic ability deep down, like every human, really. Um, so, yeah, he wakes up and he sees the little muddy footprints on his bedroom floor, but he also sees straight away that his scalpel box is empty. So I think he understands his mistakes straight away. The phone rings and it's Rachel's dad to check if she arrived safely. He lies at that point and he's like, oh yeah, I really can't talk to you right now. He tells him Ellie just had a nightmare that her mom is dead and she really needs to talk to her. But Louis just put the phone down on him and just say, like, I can't right now. The phone rings again, and he thinks it's Rachel's dad again, but it's Gage who's calling him, and he says he's at Judd, and he's asking him to come and play with him. And he said, first I played with Judd, then I played with Mummy. That's not creepy at all. Louis decides to take action at that point, which, fair play, because I didn't think he would go through with it. But he prepares a syringe uh, to pull him down, really. So he crosses the road, well-determined with his syringe, and he sees Church on Judd's lawn. So he lures him with a steak, which, which is a nice last meal for a cat. He said it's Thanksgiving for the cats and stuff like that. He injects him with the syringe and Church dies, which I always find really sad. And he goes, oh yeah, Louis just loses it. And he's just like, that's right, play dead, be dead. It's kind of cheesy. He goes in and the house is all moldy and mossy and it's completely sinking. 
And I remember in the documentary, they say it's because it's just to create the effect that it's possessed in a way by the pet cemetery and it's just mud and moss and everything. He sees Rachel's shoe on the stairs, so he goes to Rachel's shoe and suddenly the house goes back to normal. And we can hear Gage say... Gage repeats that he wants to play with his dad, so Louis agrees to play and looks for Gage with his syringe. In the bedroom, he finds Judd dead under the bed. Ouch. And Rachel's body falls on Louis from the attic and is attached with some ropes, like a harness almost. But she, she's not being hanged, it's just the way she is attached. She was pushed by Gage from the attic and Gage jumps on Louis and they start fighting. He stabs him with his scalpel a fair amount of time and Louis drops the syringe and everything. But eventually he managed to inject him. And it's kind of sad because for a second Gage seems normal and he cries for a little bit like a real kid. And he just stumbles away and he goes, it's not fair. No fair. He stumbles and he dies. Louis burns Judd's house and walks out with Rachel. So the house, Judd Crandall's house, was, it was built, it's a facade, but it was built on top of a smaller house that existed. Only the facade was supposed to burn, but actually the fire was so huge that it did damage the house a little bit underneath. Dale Mitkiff, the actor who plays Louis Creed, also suffered second degree burns to his face because he was carrying... Rachel's body, which was a dummy, but the dummy was 70 pounds heavy and he couldn't lift it up to protect his face from the blow from the explosion. So he got pretty burned up there. At this point, Victor appears to Louis again and he says he's so sorry for what happened and he warns him not to make it worse and not to make the same mistake. But Louis is grief struck. Again, grief just destroys everything. So Louis makes excuses again, saying he waited too long for Gage, blah, 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 and it will be different with Rachel. Of course it will be, of course. We see him take her towards the cemetery and we can hear Judd's voice saying, The soil of a man's heart is stonier, Lewis. Man grows what he can and he tends it. Because what you buy is what you own. What you own. While Judd is speaking, we see Louis coming back from the graveyard and is sitting on his kitchen floor playing solitaire with cards. We see Rachel's feet walking back and they're all dirty and muddy. Midnight rings at the church and also on his alarm clock, I think. She arrives behind uh, Louis and she looks all gross and there's like goo coming out of her eye socket. And they kiss, you know, he turns around and they kiss, which is really kind of disgusting. While they're kissing, she takes a knife from the table and it cuts to dark. Off screen, we can hear Louis screams. It cuts to the end credit with the awesome song by the Ramones, Pet Cemetery, which I will play at the end of the episode. There are three different endings to the film. 
And they're all pretty similar, really. The first one is wrote by Stephen King. And we see Rachel coming back to the house. We see Louis playing cards. So all that is the same. The phone rings. It's Ellie. Rachel answers and says everything is fine in a normal voice, like nothing coming from the grave or anything. Say everything is fine and there'll be a happy family. The second ending is Rachel comes home, see Louis playing card, extend her hand on his shoulder, the screen goes black and Louis screams. And that was the ending that was going to be the real ending. Mary Lambert saw it was a great ending that was really scary, but the studio needed, quote unquote, one more hit. So they decided to reshoot it and show Rachel's face all gooey and disgusting coming from the grave. So that's the end of the movie. I don't have tons of other info to give you at the end because I pretty much included it while I was talking about the movie. Uh, what can I tell you, little fun facts? I can tell you that when we see Judd's house all rotten and mossy, like possessed by the spirit of the pet cemetery, so it was quite hard to make. They had to, you know, spray it, um, put extending foam. Uh, they have to sew some of the furniture to make it look like it was sinking. And they realized that they forgot to film the flashback scene. So they had to undo it all and put it back to normal and then refilm it. So that kind of sucked. Uh, what else can I tell you? There was three dummies made. There was Judd Bust um, for when he was dead, for mainly when we see him under the bed, I think. So that was one of them. There was Dennis Grosby body, which was a whole body cast for when Louis is carrying her out of the house, which the one that was weighing um, 70 pounds. And there's a doll for Mika Hughes for Gage, which we see a couple of times. And some, peop some people have been really like, oh, look at that. It's so obvious it's a doll. And I looked for it knowing that. And I'm like, I don't know, not that much. It's not that obvious to me at all. Um, when he's on the on the road, yeah, at some point you can, but phew, I don't know. I, th I think people are a bit nitpicking here. Anyway, it's three dummies. The truck driver that kills Gage with his truck is a real truck driver. He was recruited while he was having lunch or something like that in Ellsworth, so that's pretty cool. And the truck scene, it was shot with a mirror with Miko in front of it, just to obviously not put him in danger, but also not scare him at all. It was really important that this kid wasn't traumatized by this whole experience, I guess, except from the neck ripping part that I talked about. They did pretty good with that. So they used a mirror. Finally, I can tell you that Didi Ramones allegedly read Pet Cemetery in only 40 minutes which, to be honest, I find a little bit hard to believe. Like, I'm not a slow reader, and the book is not massive, but still, 40 minutes? Okay. Anyway, that's what it is said. And Shina is a punk rocker is already existing, but the song Pet Cemetery obviously has been composed for the film. Rotten Tomatoes. So Rotten Tomatoes only put it at 51%, which I'm really surprised about because the film did great on the box office. He had quite good reviews. 
And yeah, I'm really surprised. It's so low. It's not that low, but it's low, lower than I thought anyway. I always thought it's, it's weird. Like I said earlier in the episode, for years and years in my head, I had it as a really cheesy movie, like a movie I love, but really cheesy and really kind of almost campy. And when I rewatched it again, I'm like, no, it's really not that bad at all. Like, it wasn't bad, but it's it's really nowhere near as cheesy as I thought it was. So definitely a great watch, also a great read. So you can't go wrong, really. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Really had fun on this one. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker any apps you listen to your podcast on. And don't forget to leave a review. That'd be really, really cool. And a rating. That'd be really, really awesome. You can also follow me on Instagram at spookyrama.1 where I put loads of pictures. I announce new episodes. I put little surveys, little infos and everything. It's just a lot of fun. You can also message me here with loads of suggestion or critics, whatever you want. You can also send me email at spookycams at gmail.com. I will definitely read it and answer it. And that's it. Hopefully I'll see you again in two weeks. And I'll leave you with this awesome tune, Pet Cemetery by The Ramones. Enjoy, guys. Let's go.